Shining a light on topics in internal medicine. With John and Gabby. That was good. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm John, a resident at the Yale Internal Medicine. I'm Gabby, medicine. I'm a resident at Yale in internal medicine. All right, let's jump right in. That sounds good. Welcome to the Moonlighters podcast. So, John, what are we discussing today? All right, Gab, thanks for asking. Um, uh, we're discussing AKI, uh, pre-renal versus ATN, and we have our guest, Dr. Justin Belcher, uh, MD, PhD. He's an amazing clinical instructor of medicine and nephrology at Yale. Uh, he's, he's heavily uh, involved in, in research here. Um, you know, many accolades, many degrees, uh, he was a fellow here at Yale University in nephrology, uh, where he also received his Ph.D. And his research is mainly on AKI and novel biomarkers in structural renal damage, um, also studying AKI in the setting cirrhosis. So uh, very lucky to have him here today. So welcome, Dr. Belcher. Thank you, John and Gabby. It's great to be here. A lot yeah, of fun. So why don't we um, kind of get started? We'll, we'll go through a case today and kind of uh, pick uh, Dr. Belcher's brain on uh, how he thinks about uh, pre-renal and ATN. All right, so we'll get started with our case. So Mr. S. is a 68-year-old male post worker. He has a past medical history of controlled hypertension, and he presents with a five-day history of fatigue, fevers, URI symptoms, and severe myalgias. Um, he states to you that five days ago he began to feel fatigued initially and had a fever of 100.2 that night, and then the next day started to have myalgias, um, which he felt improved with ibuprofen. But over the next three days, he continued to start feeling nauseous, had an episode of non-bloody bilious vomiting, and also endorses poor PO intake over the last four days. He felt so fatigued today that he came to the ER to get checked out. In the ED, he's normotensive. He's slightly tachycardic at 101, but he's sitting well in air. His labs are significant for a BUN of 55 and a creatinine of 3.45, with his baseline last recorded at 0.9. A flu swab is sent, and it was positive. So, Dr. Belcher, uh, we just want, would want to start off with a basic question of how you approach an undifferentiated AKI when you first start to um, kind of think of workup. Great. Thank you. So, uh, very good case. Um, when you're approaching an undifferentiated AKI, I think there's several things you need to be looking at. Um, the first thing, as always in any case with medicine, is taking a good history. Uh, Pre-renal azotema, in particular, you could usually get the clues from the history. It's not typically the case where someone comes in with no story of having any sort of volume loss or uh, water deprivation. They're walking down the street, they tripped, they broke their foot, they come in the emergency room, the creatinine is up. It's extremely unlikely that they're going to just happen to have pre-renal azotemia. So usually the history gives you the story with pre-renal. Sometimes, however, it is difficult, though, because when you have someone who's pre-renal, essentially what you have is having the kidney be hypoperfused, which means you're intravascularly volume depleted. And sometimes someone could be over, totally body volume overloaded, in fact, but intravascularly dry, so you can't always get that from the history. So in addition to taking a good history to see if there's a risk factor for pre-renal, you also want to take uh, a history looking at any potential insults that can contribute to an intrinsic renal injury. So here you're going to be looking for exposure to nephrotoxins, episodes of hemodynamic instability, episodes of severe inflammation or sepsis, which can lead to ATN directly. And finally, you're going to be considering the possibility of, of obstructive nephropathy or post-renal. And just like pre-renal, usually the history tells you the story here. Um, 
it's often the case for everyone who develops uh, acute kidney injury ends up getting a renal ultrasound, which is kind of how medicine works in practice, but not necessarily how it should work uh, ideally uh, in that anyone who has a history of um, of conditions that could lead to obstruction, so the history of kidney stones, history of, of ovarian cancer, history of uh, prostate hypertrophy or cancer, history of retroperitoneal radiation or rheumatologic diseases, absolutely you can consider doing a renal ultrasound in them. Anyone has symptoms of flank pain, dysuria, hematuria, straining, unable to urinate, absolutely do a renal ultrasound in them. If you have no history of any conditions that put you at risk for it and no symptoms of it, typically you really don't need to get the renal ultrasound. It's extremely unlikely, actually, to find an incidental obstructive nephropathy. So you kind of triage people based on uh, the risk factors that they have and the symptoms that they present with. Awesome. That's uh, <clears throat> that's great. I mean, I feel like uh, uh, we always, you know, we we always are taught, you know, the diagnosis is in the history, and I feel like in in this case, it's really helpful to kind of get the historical clues. Uh, to diagnose pre-renal azotemia. Um, w- one specific question I had uh, about pre-renal AKI is, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, if you give fluids, you know, the the, the creatinine comes down. And um, is it just that the, the kidneys aren't getting perfused or is there actually kidney damage happening in, in pre-renal azotemia? Good question. So, yes, is the, the cheeky <laughs> answer to that. Uh, so much like uh, the animals in 1984, uh, all nephrons are created equal, but some are more <laughs> equal than others uh, because all nephrons are located in different places in the kidney. Some are uh, high up in the cortex, some are juxtamedullary, some are closer to blood supply, some are further from blood supply. So if you're hyperperfusing your kidney, uh, if you hyperperfuse sufficiently, if some nephrons are deprived of blood flow for a long enough time, they'll actually develop frank structural injury and become ischemic. But this happens at different rates depending on where exactly the nephrons are. So there really is no such condition as pre-renal per se, and there's no such disease as acute tubular necrosis per se. Uh, ATN is a histologic description of dead tubular cells. Pre-renal is someone whose creatinine acutely goes up and then gets better with fluids. So you could think of it as a spectrum where if if someone of their 100 nephrons, five of them are very far away from blood, uh, they get hyperperfused and those five die. If you give that person fluids, the 95% that are structurally intact will start functioning again. Your creatinine will come down, and you'll say this patient had pre-renal because that's how you define pre-renal is responding to volume resuscitation. However, if you look at their urine, you may still actually see some granular casts consistent with frank tubular injury from those 5% that were injured. Conversely, at the other end of the spectrum, if you have 95% that are actually injured and 5% that are only hypoperfused but structurally intact, if you give that patient fluids, those 5% will start functioning again, but you won't notice any change in the creatinine because that 5% just isn't sufficient to do it. So you'll call that patient ATN. So certainly someone who behaves as pre-renal, meaning their creatinine comes down with volume resuscitation, could still have some degree of structural injury. So you talked a little bit about gathering history, how that's really important for you, kind of determining what you think the etiology of an AKI is, and touched a little bit on physical exam. I was wondering if you could deep... Uh, dive a little bit deeper into physical exam because um, I was listening to um, a separate podcast that uh, commented on physicians' um, differences in assessing volume status specifically and how if you gather a group of physicians, there have been studies that show that they all disagree. So I was wondering if you have any um, advice for providers on how you approach a volume status exam, if there are certain things you look for in particular, or if you feel like certain laboratory data is more important for you to help make that distinction. Approach volume exam with humility would be my advice. Uh, <laughs> physicians are terrible at assessing volume size. It seemed like this would be a fundamentally 
you know, fundamentally fun, fundamental and an easy thing to do. Uh, and in fact, it's not. Um, and compounding the fact, again, if you're talking about whether to determine someone is prerenal or not, what you're really looking for is intravascular volume status, not just that, uh, effective arterial circulating intravascular volume status. So um, some of the more um, technologically involved methods, such as bioimpedance and stuff, uh, are good for looking at intravascular volume status. Uh, looking at stroke volume variation is an excellent way of doing it if you have access to that data. Um, uh, the, some of the other techniques are more kind of fraught with confounding. Uh, in terms of just examining the patient, it's extremely difficult because your patient who is extremely edematous may well be intravascular volume depleted. Uh, your patient who doesn't necessarily look to be edematous or volume overloaded may be intravascular volume overloaded. Um, the things you learn in school, such as, as skin turgor and capillary refill, um, are, are okay in terms of turn of overall significant extreme totally body volume, volume depletion. Uh, but usually if you're that, if it's to the degree that you're going to be picking things up with increased skin trigger, it's not going to be subtle as to the cause of their AKI. It's more of the muddy middle ground. So volume assessment is, is very difficult. I don't unfortunately have a, a, a miraculous pearl to give about that one. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that is really, it's really hard. You know, it's funny, sometimes we, uh, you know, we have different attendings coming on service, and, you know, the day before, we're diuresing, the next day they come on, and they say, what are you doing? We need to give this patient fluids. And uh, so I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head, volume status is really hard. And then I think exactly the uh, the hardest thing is when someone is edematous, but they're intravascularly depleted, you know, maybe like a, someone with cirrhosis sometimes can be that way. Um just kind of, you know, a little research uh, before I, I saw this uh, JAMA Rational Clinical Exam article that talked about, you know, is my patient hypovolemic? And uh, the the two exams that, um, you know, were actually useful was a dry axilla, which had a positive likelihood ratio of 2.8, uh, but it was 50% sensitive. So that's not even not even that good. And then orthostatic vital signs. So, you know, we're taught like orthostatic is like uh, vital signs, patient's hypovolemia, but... They they tested uh, 900 uh, nursing home patients and measured orthostatic vitals four times a day, and they found out that uh, about 20 percent uh, had at least one uh, level of orthostatic vitals in the day. So, you know, a lot of our patients coming in with prerenal uh, azotemia are elderly patients. So it's you know I'm not sure how much we can rely on the, the orthostatics, but uh, you know going forward, so we have this patient with uh, this prerenal AKI. Um, it seems you know. We did the FINA. It's less than one. How do you approach, you know, like how much volume you give someone? And then when is a good enough time where you say, okay, this was prerenal, had a good enough response? So this, again, gets to the question of the spectrum. Um, in terms of how much volume you give, you're going to look at what are the downside of giving too much in that individual patient. So is this a patient in the history of heart failure? Is this someone where, again, you do think they are, in fact, intravascularly depleted, but they're also extremely edematous? You know, the, the the best fluid in terms of being isotonic and staying in the blood in terms of crystalloid is going to be normal saline. And of that, roughly only about 20% stays intervascular and the rest goes extravascular. So, of, you know, if you think of giving someone a liter, really only 20% is actually going inside the bloodstream. And the rest is going out into their thighs and their abdomen in your patient with anasarca. Um, so if you give too much fluid, you generally could always take it off. There's certainly a lot of data correlating uh, degree of positive fluid balance during hospitalization with mortality. A lot of that is confounded by indication. So the person who gets more fluid is also the person who needs more fluid, and that potentially could be because their sepsis is worse, so it's not necessarily causative. Uh, but in general, you want to avoid – people think of fluid as, as something harmless and let's give a bunch, and if it's too much, we'll take it all off later. You have to think of it as a drug, and so you're administering a drug with a, a designated dose. Um, in terms of volume resuscitating someone, 
uh, it's generally okay to give fluid over time. So you kind of think of fluid two ways. If you're trying to treat hypotension, you need to bolus them. If you're trying to volume resuscitate them, you can run it over time. Uh, so there's generally no need to, to hammer someone with a bolus uh, because you think they have pre-renal azotemia unless they're also septic or hypotensive. Uh, so you could run it in 100 an hour. It's generally not a problem to give most people a liter, a liter and a half and see how they do. Um, the degree to which or the speed at which the creatinine will come down will, again, depend where they are on the, the functional to structural uh, AKI spectrum. Uh, generally, you should see – it's really hard to give a specific number, but you should see at least a you know 50 percent decrease, if not more, within the first day if it's pre-renal. Uh, certainly, you shouldn't expect to see it all. This patient, I believe in this case, creatinine was around three and a half. Uh, and it's not that you should, the creatinine should be one tomorrow morning with fluids. And if the creatinine isn't one tomorrow, it's not that they didn't have pre-renal. Um, it could be they have a little bit more structural injury. It could be they just need a little bit more in the way of fluids. Um, so you start run, gen- gently running in you know, 100, 125 an hour for, for a liter, liter and a half, and then reassess. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that's good. Um you know, I, I feel like uh, sometimes we're taught to bolus all the time, and uh, that might change, you know, what I do overnight a little bit yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Bolus, bolus for blood pressure you know, per hour per, for volume yeah. resuscitation. Okay. And you don't – I mean, as a nephrologist, you know, uh, do you care whether it's normal saline or lactated ringers? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a weighted question. So <laughs> very interesting. So uh, this is uh, – you know, I've spoken of humility, humility before. This is potentially – uh, episode of humility in the face of the recommendations of surgeons, uh, which is the worst kind of humility. Um, so historically, we've always used normal saline, and people use that just because that's what they're comfortable with. It's the the isotonic crystallite of choice. Uh, there's been some data over the past few years uh, associating high chloride levels and high chloride infusion uh, is causative with AKI. And there was this fascinating pre-post trial down in Australia. They do some great AKI research in Australia where they took a very big hospital um, and they look at one year's data where they, they use normal saline and looked at the, the incidence of AKI for the whole hospital, thousands and thousands of patients throughout the year. And the next year got rid of normal saline from the formulary and put in, it's not ringers, but it's the kind of Australian equivalent, very similar to ringers, uh, and did nothing else different. So it's the same hospital, same patient admixture, same physicians. And the next year there was a really pretty significant drop in AKI uh, which is quite convincing. Um, the data hasn't been fully replicated elsewhere, uh, but there is some physiologic basis for the idea that, that chloride could be causing some AKI. So I think we really probably should be using ringers more than we do. Um, you know, ringers has 130 of saline, it has 109 of chloride, has four of potassium, three of calcium, and 28 of lactate, uh, which is metabolized into bicarb. So it's much more physiologic in terms of the electrolyte composition in your blood. Uh, the sodium of 130 is, is close enough to isotonic that it's going to give you volume resuscitation, but with significantly less chloride and giving you a little potassium or calcium if you need that as well. Wow, that's uh, that's awesome. I didn't know about that study, but um, pretty interesting. Yeah, I hate to admit it, but the surgeons might they, have been they, right on this yes, one. Yes, yeah. they, they've always used ringers. I'm, I'm not going to necessarily say they knew why they're using it, but it's certainly something they've always been comfortable using, and I think they're correct that we probably should be using more of that. Yeah, wow. Maybe John and I will start using it a little yeah, more yeah, after yeah, this yeah, talk. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't say I, I've practiced what I preach with this. I think I'm just mm-hmm. force of habit. I still reach to sailing a lot, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. probably should be doing that as well. Okay, great. Um, so... That was awesome. Good coverage of uh, pre-renal AKI. So let's let's continue the case a little bit. So, <clears throat> so our patient, uh, you know, is given two liters of normal saline, not lact- lactated ringers, overnight, and his uh, creatinine improves the next day to one point five, and so we make the diagnosis of uh, pre-renal AKI. So a few days into the hospitalization, he starts to develop worsening productive cough, fevers, and a leukocytosis. 
get a chest X-ray, and it shows a new infiltrate in the left lower lobe. So broad-spectrum antibiotics are ordered and uh, for presumed uh, post-influenza bacterial pneumonia. But uh, unfortunately, a rapid response is called in the night due to worsening vital signs. His fever is 102. Heart rate is 131. His blood pressure is 69 over 42. He's breathing 24 a minute, and his SAT is 85 on room air. So he's placed on oxygen and given another 2-liter bolus of normal saline, but his blood pressure worsens, and he's started on uh, norepinephrine, and he's transferred to the MICU. So the next day, they look, and his creatinine is 3.1, so up from 1.5. And the following day, it goes up to 5. And a nurse tell you the, the nurse tells you the patient has only had about 200 cc's of uh, urine output in the last 24 hours. So we consult renal, of course, and uh, you spin your patient's urine. You find many, many granular casts and uh, and, our, and renal uh, tubular epithelial cells. So let's just start like kind of broadly about um, you know you kind of talked about pre-renal AKI and uh, ATN on the spectrum, but how do you think about ATN? You know what is your what are your thoughts when you first you know uh, you know see a patient and you're thinking this is ATN? Well, I think, you know, how you think about ATN, first of all, it should be often. You should be thinking about it. <laughs> um, it's, you know, when you think of AKI in the hospital, this is kind of typically what the first thing that springs to mind. Uh, it's important to realize that the, it is very much a disease of the hospital, so it's the most common cause of AKI in the hospital. By no means is that true in the community. Um, certainly, if you roll through the door in the emergency room, you're already in septic shock, then you could certainly have ATN. But your average patient seeing uh, an outpatient who's creatinine has been climbing up a little bit recently. It's very rarely ATN. So this is a hospital disease where we're giving nephrotoxins, we're giving contrasts, patients are hypotensive, patients are septic. Uh, so you should start here, as with the other causes of AKI, with the history, but this is one where it's potentially potentially a little less helpful. Um, in terms of the pre-renal and post-renal, the history and the presentation almost always tells you what's going on. Here, certainly, you can pick up the fact that they were hypotensive or they got nephrotoxins, and absolutely, they could point towards ATN. But if you look down the hall and the rest of the patients in the unit, you could find a bunch of them who had the same thing who didn't have their creatinine rise. So you can't say for certain that's what it is. But certainly, you should dig through the chart. This is a great thing to kind of really burrow into in the chart, looking through all the vitals, looking for episodes of hemodynamic instability, looking for nephrotoxins. And it doesn't take much. So we'll have patients we get consulted on for ATN postoperatively. And really, all you could find is during surgery for five, 10 minutes, their pressure dropped to, to 85 over 60, something like that, and then bounced right back up. But that was enough in that individual to do it. So you want to tease through the history and look for the kind of the three big picture things that cause ATN. Uh, two have been uh, appreciated for a long time. One is a little more recent. The two older ones are ischemia, obviously, help with perfusion, and nephrotoxins. Uh, and more recently, sepsis as a cause of ATN has been appreciated. And this is not sepsis causing hypotension uh, and ischemia, uh, but normotensive ATN where you have sepsis and you're not hypotensive. And it's just the inflammatory state itself and actually the direct cytokine toxicity in the tubules which causes it. So this could be in the site of infection or something like pancreatitis or anything where you're just severely inflamed irrespective of actual drop in pressure. So you try to try to triage which of those is at play. Very often it's all of the above or two of the above. Uh, it's often not a, a pure uh, insult. Uh, in terms of diagnosing, you've already did the most important thing, which is looking at the urine microscopy, which uh, everyone should do for every case of AKI. It's fantastic. It's it's basically a way of looking at cells from inside the body without doing a biopsy. Uh, it's like a non-invasive biopsy looking at the urine. So you know, a day spinning urine is a, a day well spent. Um, so you're looking for your granular casts. Uh, you're looking for your renal tubular epithelial cells. So what those are is the tubular epithelial cells, so the cells that line the inside of your tubules, uh, normally stuck together with very uh, tight junctions, 
when you have tubular injury, some of those cells die and slough off into the tubules, and initially they start coming intact down into the urine. Uh, so if you find someone very early in the setting of ATN, you will see actual RTEs, which look like a sunny-side-up egg, big round cells with one single round nucleus. Uh, and the urine, if you're super lucky, if you're you know praying to the, the gods in nephrology, you can actually see an RTE cell cast, which is the actual intact renal tubular epithelial cells in the shape of a cast. More commonly, those cells slough off from the lumen of the tubule. They sit there for a little bit. They degrade. They break down. And the broken down de- debris of those cells are the granular debris that forms the granular cast. So you want to look at that. Uh, and then you could look at some of your urine, your urine electrolyte studies as well. Oh, can I just ask a quick question about the microscopy? So we're taught on the floors and whenever we consult a nephrology fellow to help us with um, the microscopy, they always tell us to get a fresh sample of right. urine. Is there? Can you explain why that is important? Right. So the longer uh, the urine sits there at room temperature, the more the cells break down, the more the casts degrade and break down. So eventually, it's not that it's all going to magically melt away, but all the the organized shapes and the, are going to degrade. And if you look in the urine after several hours, it's going to be, you're going to see there's something there. There's a bunch of debris there, but not in the shape of any recognizable uh, cells and not in the shape of any identifiable casts. Uh, so the formal teaching, it should be less than about three hours or so. Really less than one hour is, is preferable, if possible. Okay. Uh, you can um, put it in the refrigerator and let it last a little longer, but Generally, the, the nursing staff doesn't appreciate that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'd probably get yelled at for yeah, that. Yeah, I but... don't know how that would go over. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. <clears throat> kind of a follow-up question is um, with regard to, uh, you know, ATN, you know, can you talk a little bit about the pathophysiology and uh, a little bit about, you know, um, the, the phases of ATN? if you wouldn't mind touching on on those two things. Sure. Uh, Well, the pathophysiology is varied. That sounds like a a trite answer, but it's actually important because this is one of the reasons we don't have any treatments for ATN uh, in that we said it can be due to ischemic, nephrotoxic, or septic uh, insults. And since ATN isn't a disease, what we refer to as ATN is granular cells appear, granular casts appearing in the urine, which is a histologic endpoint of a lot of different physiologic processes leading to that. So as you can imagine, many things can cause that cell to die, but the exact pathway through the, the interleukins involved, the toll-like receptors, et cetera, vary dramatically where there's an incidence of patient getting cisplatin versus them having pancreatitis versus them being hypotensive on six or seven pressors. So one of the reasons we don't have treatments for them is we're trying to treat basically a histologic endpoint with one drug. And kind of the analogy you can make is this is like trying to treat chest pain with one drug. And that's chest pain due to an MI, due to esophagitis, due to a rib fracture, due to shingles, due to someone punching you in the chest. If you give all those people Plavix, you would have a negative trial. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do with ATN is give all these different diseases one drug. Uh, there are some drug drugs that work for ATN in animals. Uh, and kind of the two reasons why that they don't work in humans, this is one of them, is the, the heterogeneity of it, in that in animals, they know exactly what they did to that animal, and they did one thing only. So your patient in the ICU, yes, they're hypotensive. They're also getting nephrotoxic meds. They're also on you know, penicillins. They're also getting contrast. The animal in the lab got cisplatin or got a 5-6 nephrectomy. So one insult, uh, a known insult, and now you can target the exact pathway that insult uh, propagates through. The second issue is timing in terms of why we can't develop medicines for ATN. So um, the reason, you know, everyone, no one's creatinine is zero. Uh, your creatinine is, is a good creatinine is one. The reason it's one is because you're in a steady state, uh, which means you're producing the same amount of creatinine that you're excreting. Uh, and if you have an acute change in your GFR, which is what AKI is, 
you stop excreting as much creatinine. But your creatinine can only now rise based on how much you're producing. Uh, and just because you've AKI, you don't start producing more of it. So there's a limit to how, high you, how fast your creatinine can rise. So if you have a, even a significant ATN and your creatinine starts at 1 today, tomorrow it might be 1.8 and then 2.1 and then 2.7 and then 3.2. And now nephrology is called and we give our, our quote-unquote ATN medicine and it doesn't work. Um, and the reason being, again, that, is that the actual injury was four days ago. Um, and that animal in the lab, you give the animal the injury and then 10 seconds later you give the medication. So the challenges of treating ATN are, are the timing of diagnosis and the heterogeneity of the disease processes that lead to one common histologic endpoint. Awesome. Yeah, that was, um, you know, that's kind of like eye-opening and thinking about, you know, we're kind of catching it late a little bit. <clears throat> I know you talked about, you know, I've, I heard a lecture before you kind of talked about uh, um, like the renal vasoconstriction in ATN. And uh, I think you had a saying where you said it's uh, not acute renal failure, it's acute renal success. Oh, is that true? Yes, it is. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Sure. That kind of goes back to the, the FINA, um, which we touched on a little bit on before. So, FINA, the fractional excretion of sodium, uh, is historically been used to distinguish uh, pre-renal or functional AKI from ATN or intrinsic AKI. And the rationale being, you know, FINA, what the fractional excretion of sodium is, is what percent of the sodium that is filtered through glomerulus actually gets excreted at the end into the urine. And typically, the answer is not very much. So a normal FINA, we say as 1%. In reality, it's actually probably even a little less than 0.8 or 0.75, something like that. Um, but the vast majority, at least 99% of the sodium that is filtered, typically outside of AKI, is normally reabsorbed. When you're hypoperfusing your kidneys, when you have pre-renal, again, it doesn't matter if you're actually volume deplete or not. If you're intravascularly volume deplete and hypoperfusing your kidneys, the kidneys perceives that you're volume deplete. And physiologic purposes, sodium equals volume. That's a good take-home for everyone is that sodium equals volume. So if you're hypoperfusing your kidney, the kidney thinks that you're volume deplete. If your volume deplete, that means your sodium deplete, and that means the kidney tries to reabsorb even more than that 99%. So it becomes really sodium avid. So instead of excreting 1% of your filtered sodium, you excrete 0.5% or 0.3% of your filtered sodium. So using the phena is one of the ways we, did, we diagnose pre-renal azotemia. Uh, this is fraught with a lot of troubles. The phena, like many tests in medicine, was, was uh, designed in a, a small, underpowered, you know, sketchily uh, executed trial or study, not even a trial. Um, so uh, formally, if you're going to use the phena, the patient should be oliguric. They should not have gotten any IV fluids, and they should not be on any diuretics. Uh, in reality, none of those are usually true. The phena is kind of metastasized as a test, uh, which is okay to some extent. You could still use it. You just have to keep in mind uh, what the patient has already had happened to them and how that's going to affect it. So if they've gotten IV fluids, you've dumped a lot of sodium into them, uh, it doesn't matter what how hyperperfused their kidney was before. If you give them three liters of saline, they're going to spill a bunch of sodium in the urine, and their phena is going to go up. Uh, if they got a bunch of fluids and the phena is still low, then that's useful. That means it was even lower before. Uh, if they're on a diuretic, which blocks the reabsorption of sodium, that's going to artificially elevate their phena. Again, if it's still low, that's helpful. If the phena is high and they're on a diuretic, then you could often look at the fractional excretion of urea instead. So that's the pre-renal. For ATN... Historically, the teaching is that FINA is, should be high in ATN, should be above two or three. And the reason being that the tubules are injured, all those little pumps and transporters that we learn about can't reabsorb the sodium, so you spill sodium in your urine, so your FINA goes up. Um, and along with that, it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. Someone asked me this question when I was a, a student, and this is, I could almost pinpoint 
this moment is when I got interested in nephrology because it was such a kind of mind-blowing physiology, at least to me. Um, and they said, you know, why with ATN do people stop peeing? Because they think about it, it doesn't make any sense because the sodium – so two-thirds of sodium is reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. Two-thirds of everything is reabsorbed in the proximal tubule except for magnesium for the most part. And along with that sodium is two-thirds of the water. And it comes via aquaporin channels, but this isn't the aquaporin channels that you think about when you think about ADH and vasopressin. Uh, those are all in the collecting duct and distally. These are aquaporin channels where they're constitutively there. They're always there. And so you reabsorb sodium through your, your NH3 exchanger approximately, and the water just passively comes along with it because as you reabsorb sodium, the osmolality of your interstitium goes up, and so water flows along with it. So two-thirds your water reabsorbed approximately, two-thirds your sodium reabsorbed approximately. If you have injury there and you can't reabsorb that sodium and, and that water, in theory, you should start excreting more sodium and more water should go along with it because you're not reabsorbing the water because there's no osmotic gradient. So the more severe your ATN and the more nephrons are involved, superficially, the higher urine output should be because your glomeruli are not damaged. They're structurally intact. They're still filtering. You're not reabsorbing sodium water. So severe ATN should result in polyuria. And I'm not talking about the post-ATN period. I'm talking about the actual ATN period. Whereas, in fact, of course, it doesn't. All your patients in the ICU and five pressors and severely hypotensive aren't peeing up a storm. They're aneuric. And there's three reasons for that. There's two kind of structural reasons. One is that as you have your tubular cells injured uh, and you start sloughing some dead tubules into your tubular lumen, there are now some gaps in between the cells. It's like a little kid who's losing their teeth. So there's some spots where some of the fluid that you filtered and the filtrate that you formed can now kind of get reabsorbed back into the interstitium. So, so there's some back leak of fluid. Uh, and the other kind of anatomic reason is that as you form these casts, they can literally plug the tubules and block the, the filtrate from going through it. But the more interesting thing, more fun reason, uh, has to do with the process of tubular glomerular feedback in your, in your juxtaglomerular apparatus, which is basically designed to keep you filtering a constant, producing a constant amount of filtrate and a constant amount of renal blood flow. Such that, and it does that by measuring the sodium and chloride. Technically, it's probably the chloride, but you can think of it as sodium and chloride that are coming downstream and reaching the juxtaglomerular apparatus. And if the amount of sodium and chloride decreases, the kidney responds and says, aha, we're not filtering more. We've got to get more blood flowing here and dilates the afferent arterial. You know, it goes alphabetical. Afferent goes in. Efferent goes out. So it dilates the afferent arterial, increases the blood flow to the kidney, and increases the amount of filtrate that you're forming. If too much is coming downstream, it says, well, we're filtering too much. Vasoconstricts the afferent arterial. If you have a severe ATN and damage your proximal tubules such that you can't reabsorb sodium and water, this huge tsunami of sodium and chloride comes downstream. And if you do the math, you could actually calculate that out. It's, it's kind of fun based on a, a GFR of 125 and a sodium concentration of 140 millimoles a liter. If you do the math, you end up filtering about a pound of sodium in a day, a pound of sodium. It's massive. I mean, respect for the kidney. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so if you have this enormous amount of sodium you're filtering, reabsorbing virtually all of it, if all of a sudden you have ATN, your tubule is damaged, and your phena goes to, to 10, to 20, to 40, all the, you're, going to be, you're going to be dead. You're going to be dead of hypovolemic shock in 30 minutes, basically. You're going to, you're going to pee yourself to death uh, from loss of sodium equals volume. You're losing all your volume. You're going to go into hypovolemic shock. So if you really have damaged your nephron, you can't resorb that sodium and water. You have to stop filtering or you're going to die. So when that juxtaglomerular apparatus sees a massive amount of sodium and chloride coming downstream, it completely constricts the afferent arterial by a release of adenosine and basically shuts off that nephron. So the nephron goes quiescent. And if you have severe enough ATN, enough nephrons are shut off and you stop peeing entirely. Even though the glomeruli are structurally intact and not damaged, that it is indeed it is acute renal success, not acute renal failure, because the kidney is saving you. And then as time goes on, 
and the tubule starts to repair itself a little bit, you'll start to produce a little bit of filtrate. Uh, and basically, it's this balancing act. So where the nephron basically wants to start filtering again, but it's not going to do it until it can do it safely. So once you're able to reabsorb enough sodium, they're not going to you know, die of hypovolemic shock, you start filtering again, which doesn't mean the nephron is perfect. It can't reabsorb, still can't reabsorb some of the sodium in water. And that's where you have your post-ATN diuresis, where the nephron is functional enough that it's safe to filter, but not perfectly functional such that you're still going to be losing some volume and still potentially need to give some fluids to keep up with it. Oh, wow. That's, thank you for that explanation. I feel like I've heard of post-ATN um, like autodiuresis so many times and mm-hmm. never really understood the physiology of why that happens. Um, but yeah, definitely smart of the kidney. Good yeah, like, self-preservation <laughs> mechanism yeah, there. Organ. <laughs> Unsung um, hero, really. Uh, yeah, really. <laughs> Um, all right. So I just want to bring us back to the case for just a minute sure. and talk about um, when you start to think about dialysis for a patient. So right now we have a patient. He's in the MICU. He's not doing very well. The nurse just told you that he has 200 cc's of urine output in the past 24 hours, and his creatinine has continued to climb um, up to five at this point. Uh, in medical school, we learn about the acronym AEIOU as our indications for urgent dialysis. Um, what starts to get you worried, and uh, how would you approach uh, the question of whether or not a patient needs dialysis? Sure. There's there's medical considerations. There's practical considerations as well. So uh, not that there always should be, but in the rural world, there are. So the AIU is, is correct. So that's that's acid-based disorder. And this is the caveats here are more for the fellows, but acid-based disorder that can't be managed medically, uh, electrolyte disorder, typically hyperkalemia that can't be managed medically, I is ingestion, toxic ingestion, O is volume overload, uh, and then U is uremia, specifically uh, pericarditis or encephalopathy. Um, the managed medically is important uh, for the fellows. So they don't have to come at 3 in the morning. But sometimes you could temporize these things medically. Um, importantly, not on there uh, are creatinine and urine output. Um, and this is a lot of the times you get calls for you say the patient's creatinine is 9, you have to do dialysis, so they haven't peed in 7 hours, you have to do dialysis. And certainly those things track with the AEIOU. And if, they, if you're anuric for long enough, then one of these other things is indeed going to become a problem. But just lack of urine output for any given period of time per se, and certainly creatinine at any level per se, in and of itself is not a reason for, for dialysis. So um, that said, you don't want to late to the last minute. You don't want it to be 3 in the morning trying to put a Quentin in in the ICU and they become septic and their INR is 9 and it's just it's a mess. Uh, so better to be a bit early than a bit late. Um, practically and medically, as there's been studies of this recently actually looking at timing of dialysis in AKI. Um, there's actually a bunch of studies looking at this, uh, trying to determine whether it's better to, to aggressively do it, in which case almost certainly you'll be dialyzing some people who probably wouldn't have needed it, that if you just held off a day, they would have stabilized and gotten better. So you're doing unnecessary dialysis uh, versus waiting until later where you're not going to be doing anyone unnecessarily, but some people are now going to be kind of crashing as you initiate it. Uh, and the data generally seems to indicate earlier is better uh, to a degree. Um, so you probably want to err on the side of, of earlier rather than later, and you want to look at kind of the trajectory of things. So you know, if their urine output has indeed been dropping over several hours, and you'd say you could pinpoint what it's due to, it's due to hypotensive, it's due to their shock, and that's nothing, not something that's getting better. Uh, it's not that you need to dialyze them because they haven't peed in six or eight hours per se. It's that because their shock hasn't gotten any better, there's no reason to expect they're going to start peeing in the next 16 hours either. So now in a controlled environment during the daytime when everyone's here, we might as well put the line in and start dialyzing someone. 
Um, but there is no creatinine threshold uh, and many of these other things, you know, the acid-based electrolyte disorders, there's a lot you can do med- medically to temporize them if you have a reason to think that things are going to turn around. If there's no reason to think that things are turn around, there's, there's no reason to, to mess around with it and, and just delay the inevitable. Yeah, that's uh, that's good to know. I mean, expanding on the AIOU a little bit more and understanding, you know, when we talk to the, our renal fellows, you know, we ask them every day, are they going to dialyze today? And, and, you know, there's a lot of things we can do to prevent that. Um, so, you know, let's finish up the, the case here. Um, Gabby, if you want to tell tell the, the rest of the story. Yeah, anxiously awaiting yeah. the conclusion. Indeed. So Mr. S., our patient, um, was diagnosed ultimately with ischemic ATN. Uh, over the course of the next week, he was oliguric but then became polyuric. Um, his renal function returned to slightly above his baseline, and he ultimately was discharged back home. Oh, thank so God. Happy yeah. ending happy for ending. him. Yeah. <laughs> Super. So kind of going over, you know, what we talked about today, um, you know, our case kind of brought us through a lot of topics, you know, uh, pre-renal AKI, which, um, you know, we talked about the spectrum. We should think about AKI pre-renal versus ATN and then how it's difficult sometimes to tell someone's volume status. Um, uh, we talked about ATN, uh, the pheno a little bit and uh, acute renal success where uh, the kidneys uh, save your life from, uh, uh, you know, losing all of your volume. And then a little bit of uh, indications on dialysis. So, um, you know, that's the end of our case here. I wanted to say thanks, uh, Dr. Belcher. That was amazing to hear kind of your insight on this. I appreciate you coming coming on the show. And um, thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. My pleasure, John. Gabby, thanks for having me. And this is a great, great podcast you're doing. I hope all the best for you. Thank you. Thank you. Just want to say a quick thanks to all our listeners. If you like the podcast, please go to iTunes and rate us. Also, just tell your friends about us. It'll be a tremendous help. Also want to thank the uh, Yale Internal Medicine Residency Program for their support. We are the Moonliners signing off. We will see you next time.